I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Please join me in a very warm welcome to Adam Folds and Andrew Motion. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. Um, just very quickly to introduce this, because the next 40 minutes, 45 minutes, is going to go past incredibly quickly. I thought that I would say um, that, and this is by way of being transparent about something or other, that Adam and I have known each other for 12 years. Um, we first met when I was uh, teaching creative writing at the University of East Anglia, where Adam was a student. You'll notice the way I, that I say that avoids my saying that I taught him, because I've, I've almost never met anybody that I feel I've taught less than I taught Adam, because he arrived being so complete in what he wanted to do. But that is how we met. Um, and I remember, though I don't think we're going to go into this tonight, all sorts of very interesting conversations during the year that we overlapped there. And since then, we have become very good friends. Um, but not, I hope, in a way that stops me asking questions which are properly searching t- tonight. Um, I wanted to begin by asking some quite straightforward and simple questions, slow bowling questions, about how this book came into being. So... Adam, perhaps you'd just like to begin by saying, um, well, two things really perhaps might be a way into this, to say how much time you gave yourself between starting this book and ending the previous one, and also how conscious you were of wanting to do something that in some sense was different. Um, uh, I Actually, I tried to roll into writing this book pretty much immediately, um, after the previous books and then uh, found that I couldn't quite um, uh, because I'd written those uh, first three books um, successively in a relatively short space of time um, and they'd been published and various things that uh, happened uh, in life and I um, was quite sort of turned around at the end of that um, period so I needed... Um, I needed some time off. I needed some time to notice things and to um, think. But I, I was—I quite quickly knew that this was the book that would uh, that I would uh, go on to write. It just 
um, then obviously necessitated also quite a long period of um, research. Um, and in terms of uh, thinking of something different, um, I guess, I mean, I've all, all, each of the books that I've published have been quite, uh, has been something new and has had a, uh, a world of its um, own that I've wanted to kind of lose myself in and to um, serve. So it, was, it felt continuous in its discontinuity in that way. Um, but actually, it was the first time that it felt like it was connecting up to uh, something in, uh, in a previous book in that I had written The Broken Word, this long poem uh, that is set during the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya and has lots of violence in it and lots of the experience of that and of trauma and where that violence in someone's experience becomes unsayable. And there was, uh, it was a very, it's a short thing, it's very comp- concentrated and um, lots of that felt sort of cut off and still tingling in my mind. There was stuff about those experiences that I wanted to write through um, and this book emerged as, as a way to, to do that. Well, I mean, I think I felt, in fact, I know that I felt, and I dare say other people reading the book, reading the new novel, have felt the same about this, that of the previous books, the one that seemed most strongly connected with the new book was The Broken Word, not only because of its interest in how trauma makes people feel that what is happening to them is unreal, and I want to come back to that, uh, if, I'm, if we may, in a, in a moment, but also, of course... Um, formally, because there is a point in Adam's new book, as many of you will already know, where what we think of as the orthodoxies of prose are, if not quite set aside, are at least interrupted by something that is manifestly a poem, and then succeeded by things which in their brevity and concentration might well be thought of as sort of prose poems. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't read very much about what other people have written about about the book, but I I suspect that a lot of people think that this poem is dumped down in the middle of it, or set down in the middle of it, and it's surrounded by passages of prose. Actually, that doesn't Mm. seem to me quite what's going on here. I think there is a a moment at which poetry, in quite a candid form, arrives in the middle of the book, and then there are, it's succeeded by things which are much more like poems than anything that's preceded that that moment. So so when did your your thoughts about what form it was going to take take shape? I didn't, to be honest, I didn't really think of that section as being um, a poem. I thought of it as the moment where the text would rupture. Mm. Um, and that has to do with the writing of trauma, as you say. There's, I think it's Adam Phillips' definition that trauma is that which is outside history. It's, that, it's unnarratable, it's sort of outside right. uh, uh, discussable experience, um, at least in, uh, for a while, um, and that that sort of section of rupture um, is m- me taking the reader and myself as close as I can get to that point beyond which is a totally chaotic uh, sense of the world uh, and experience. So it's that that moment of the linguistic, the narratable self breaking down or yes. spinning apart. Um, I had I, there was a, what, there's one model in mind that I had for that, which is in. Henry Roth's Call It Sleep, um, there's a, it's, which is a wonderful uh, novel where uh, there's, a, there's a crucial moment at the climax of um, sort of 
the intensifying drama of this young boy's life, he accidentally steps on a live rail and the text kind of fizzes across the page and explodes in voices. It's just a wonderful bit of kind of high modernist stuff, which is, is more complicated and more orchestrated than the thing I do. But I like very much that experience of entering a bit of a text where suddenly even kind of physically the way you are interacting with the book is, is changed um, uh, for a purpose. That's very interesting because it, it looks like a poem. Yeah. Your readers know that you, have, that you write poems, that you have written this long poem. So it's almost inevitable they should think of that fissuring, rupturing as a, um, as a kind of poetic activity. Before I com- come to what I thought I was going to say next, I just wanted to, to say that I think that there is a, something very interesting to say here about the ways in which trauma produces, emphasises the ways in which people find it difficult to communicate with one another. If I were looking for continuities between the new book and the previous ones, poems and prose, poem and prose, I would say that it was to do with people's being, people being, having a feeling that they were sealed in their own experience and being made sort of hyperly conscious of their own particular ways of speaking that were both then interesting to them as ways of communicating but also ways of cutting them off from other people. After all, in the very first novel of all, there are people who, for reasons of class and would the, would the, would the word disability be too strong? I mean, certainly sort of mental difficulties of one kind or another, finding it difficult to speak across the device that they feel their selves to be. In the broken word, there are people who, for reasons of to do with madness, um, and again, social class, finding it difficult to communicate with one another. And what happens in, and in the broken word, slightly different, but there is something similar to say there, I think, but what happens in the new book is that there is a divide between Sicilians and Americans, between among Sicilians themselves, between, amongst the, among the Americans themselves, among the Ameri- between the Americans and the Brits. So it seems to me that really your abiding theme is to do with the, com- the complexities of communicating from your particular place and voice with other people who have their own places and voices. Do you recognise that? Um, I hadn't put that uh, together, but... Um I, I, yeah, I, but that um, that makes sense. Um, I don't know how if I've thought. How, I guess I think I've been interested in moments of extreme experience and moments of rupture in people's experience um, f- because of the way that m- that makes a makes for a kind of a moment where there's an essential reckoning or an essential kind of. Um, uh, act of reconnecting with the world where there's a point at which where your definition of what it is to be a person and what I need to do to be in this world becomes very urgent right. and uh, and that is obviously a very uh, radically kind of individuating yeah. thing um, which war which conflict in general and war in particular emphasises in a Yes, relating way. Yeah, obviously, as does uh, the various kinds of mental uh, uh, distress or hallucinatory states that are in um, uh, the Quickening Maze, um, with its characters in a a mental asylum. Right. Um, Yes, I mean that's that's these those three books, uh, Quickening Maze, In the Wolf's Mouth, and The Broken Word. Those are much more. 
extreme and to the fore those those moments and I think the stuff I'm writing now I'm I'm putting the world yeah. back together yes. in a more um, kind of uh, with a with a uh, more legato sense of yeah. experience a more uh, coherent sense of I feel like I've I've worked out or had the experience that I needed to have by yeah. going to those places and now something else something more social and more sentimental or uh, uh, more yeah more communicatively possible is kind of yes uh, going on I mean I, I ended up thinking there was something very complicated and very fascinating about to do with only connect not in the sense of the original a meaning of that Forster's phrase connecting um, poetry with passion or whatever it is, prose with passion or whatever it is that he says, but with simply with one another and how we get over the barriers that, that, that define us. But actually, before we go much further into this, and I do want to go into, into it a bit more, if that's all right, perhaps you could read us this moment of transition, yeah. this, this sure. eruptive moment in the middle but of the You book. just reminded me, I've been reading... Um, uh, uh, Rainer Stach's biography of Kafka today, and there's a great line about how, how terribly the um, Yiddish theatre troupe that Kafka got very uh, interested in would perform. And the line in the biography is something like they would uh, miss their cues, step on their own uh, costumes, and hold each other's wigs whilst in place whilst embracing. In terms of that, um, it couldn't be, be a better, yes, sweeter true. image of yeah, kind right. of human collaboration yes. than exactly. actors holding each other's wigs in place whilst embracing. Um, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a very nice version of Only Connect. Um, that's actually a, now a hard thought to transition out of into uh, uh, this moment of, um, of extreme experience in battle. So this is... Uh, one of the main characters in the novel is... Um, a young Italian-American infantryman called Ray Marfione, and uh, he goes right through the middle of the experience of battle um, as a foot soldier, essentially, in, in uh, North Africa. Um, uh, and, yeah, uh, gets very nearly broken by that. So this is the section where, um, as you can see, the, the prose sort of starts <laughs> splitting up. <coughs> Floating now, weightless without sound, fear, fear so great it had washed him empty. Up through his bones, his footbeats told him he was running. Two thumps of explosion, mud splash, fire in it, small shots pecking the ground in several places. People lying on the ground like, what are they? Running, burn of ankle twist over, like people, shaped like people, over rocks, behind rocks, a piece of sky towards that, like dolls. Dropped everything dead already, dead piece by piece. A man lying with one arm already dead, the rest of him thrashing. Dead and running, fast as he could, dropping to hide flat with the others and wait, and his shoulder against the hip of a man in front, solid bone, rapid trembling. Over there a man trying to dig a foxhole with his helmet, metal pranging off the rocks. Just in front something moving, effort to focus to see, before it was too late, but it was so close. A bug, nothing moving in a small circle on its disturbed patch, jointed feelers dabbling the ground, smart black, crumb of sand on it, planes screaming over, all matter just matter, jerking with life some of it, just jumping a little bit, tearing against itself, fraying, frittering, bleeding, lying still, scattered, whiz of 88, just short, throwing stuff in his face, 
pushing himself flatter against the earth, nothing underneath, earth darkness, up, running, low ridge to get behind and settle and up. He had to join in now, pulling his trigger at those shapes over there, the crack of his gun faint by his ear. George, was George doing the same or was he lying, dropped, couldn't see him anywhere, smoke rolling across from something, up again into blasts from all directions that he couldn't survive, running. Well, you get, you get the idea. Yeah. There's, there's, a, there's a phrase which leaps out at you when you read that on the page and that leapt out again to me now, which is like dolls. Um, because what that allows you to begin to think about is the way in which the experience that's being suffered, endured, had by this character um, means that he sees the world about him in not quite human terms. Yeah. It, it reminds me, and I wonder whether you, how much you think about this person, very much the kind of thing that Keith Douglas does when he's writing poems in the desert during the Second World War, not a, a million miles away from where you are writing, you are imagining this t- to happen. Douglas talks about, I mean, he's, Douglas is, of course, the great unacknowledged, compared to the great poets of the First World War, the great un- unacknowledged poet of the Second World War. He talks about um, corpses lying around like sunbathers. Hmm. Um, the, the main drift of his poetry is to do, interestingly, I think, to do with the way in which people trying to kill each other feel detached from the, the person at the other end yeah. of the bullet. Um, and there's a great deal of that in, in this. Ray is somebody um, who is fascinated, for instance, by cinema. He sees almost everything in terms of the movies, the movies he wants to write. His very name, Ray, suggests the light that comes through the machine that then projects the image. Um, perhaps I should stop there and let you no, say um, something about that. Uh, I th- yeah, I, um, I think that experience of um, seeing people killed, seeing sudden stillness appear um, uh, makes for that s- s- perception that, of, that uh, of all the matter in the universe, the bits of it that are alive are very much kind of localised yeah. um, and uh, unstable uh, so I think that's um, and it, yeah, there are various. He has various perceptions. There's a bit where he see, he gets a sense that um, that life can be scraped off the surface of the earth. Yeah, bombs right. kind of rake it up, and <clears throat> it's uh, like tearing up uh, wallpaper with its kind of coherent pattern. That underneath there is this yes. bareness, and that's that's a, a strong aspect of his uh, trauma. Is the sense of um, Layeredness. Of layeredness and yes. the thinness of yes. um, life's uh, surface over a deep blankness, that earth darkness that is mentioned in, uh, in that passage that I just read. But I want to say, I mean, having, you know, I want to talk, should, to stress that this, uh, a large part of the novel is him getting back into the world um, and getting back into a sense of how the world is habitable and yeah. how... Uh, how people make it habitable yeah. for each other. Um, so there's a very, whilst there is all this difficult stuff about trauma and violence and destruction that was difficult for me to spend that time with yeah, too, um, there's a kind of countervailing uh, tenderness and uh, affection and 
uh, creative urge that is yes. all the more kind of exacerbated by um, that experience of its opposite. Yes. Well, the other thing you do, I mean, not the only other thing you do, but another thing you do is to set up traumatic situations in all the things that you've written, which are then redeemed by love. I mean, that is the story yeah. of the broken word, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, it's um, for those of you who haven't read the broken word, which, and if you haven't, you must buy it tonight and read it. Fantastic, fantastic poem. Um, describes horrible things during the Mau Mau Rebellion, as, as Adam was saying. And then in the last section, the last two sections, um, our boy comes back to England, meets a girl, and actually we think it's about to go off the rails. And then she comes round and says, mm. in so many words, do you want to marry me? Mm. I mean, it's time you started looking in jeweler's windows that's how the book ends so very clearly um, the drift of the poem is that trauma can be cured by kindness at least and by, by love more, more definitely and I think that happens here too though in a more blown apart sort of way well it's really about the tenderness between men between yes, soldiers and that, that was something that I got yeah. very interested in was how Often in you know cultures where um, the open expression of love between men is a is a difficult mm. and closely invigilated um, and often prohibited thing, actually in military life among soldiers and in extreme situations, is one place where um, that love is is expressible. Yeah. And those but those bonds are tremendously up to a uh, point. Yeah, but and those. Uh, those bonds are obviously becoming incredibly deep. Yes. Um, there's it a is very, sorry. There's a very good... I mean, amongst the things that I read that, was very, that were very suggestive and useful, there's a tremendous book um, by uh, an American psychiatrist called Jonathan Sloan, uh, which is called Achilles in Vietnam. Fantastic book. Yeah, which is, a, this, uh, is his... Uh, he worked a lot with Vietnam veterans with um, PTSD and... It's his reading of uh, the Iliad in terms of how right or, or not it is about, about military psychology. Yeah. And one of the things... So he writes brilliantly about sort of the berserk state, which is something that is described in, in Homer and uh, is something that happens when soldiers in complete uh, in breakdown become a kind of a pure and utterly uh, unself-preserving kind of force of violence. I fought like an angel, Wilfred Owen says yeah. in one of his letters. I mean, that's a very... Yeah, and typically they, you know, they have uh, a lifespan of minutes, people in a, yeah. a berserk state. But another thing he writes about is the relationship between Achilles and Patroclus and what that... Yeah. Uh, and how, how real that is about, yes. uh, about um, soldiers' love for each other. Yes. Though often, I mean, I, and I think characteristically not as knowingly eroticised as that relationship... Yeah. Yes, yeah. I mean it. It is, but it is perfectly true, isn't it? And fascinatingly, so that talking to soldiers now and, I mean, of now today's wars, ending wars, beginning wars, um, and of my father's generation, that is, when you say, "Why did you do it?" Mm. They don't do it for king or queen and country. They do it for each other. Mm. So that is a very interestingly abiding thing. I think there's a. But there's something going on alongside this in the book too, which is alongside this question of how you experience the reality of a situation or or don't, which is the background to it, if you if you like. 
which is how people belong in a place. Mm. For those of you who haven't yet read the novel, um, part of the uh, structure of it is to do with displacements of one kind or another. So it begins with people who belong in Sicily going to America and then, of course, during the war coming back. But the other story that's running alongside all this is to do with an Englishman, Will, again, an interesting name, um, who, who wills upon himself the idea of the war being a noble thing. He's a kind of Lawrence of Arabia figure, actually, isn't he? A, a generation. Yeah, or he's certainly his. Uh, his yeah, his, that may be true. He's defensive about the. the yes. uh, his mother calling him, you know, a Lawrence of Arabia type. Quite. <laughs> but he, yeah, no, he, he clearly. Is. Yeah, no, yes. he is. He's someone who thinks he might uh, play the great game, you know, and, right. and and be perceptive and dynamic and decisive and make. Uh, find victories for the British yes. Empire. Yes, and find there, through all that, a, a kind of belonging either for the Empire yeah. and or him, himself. And he has a brother, Ed, yeah. who, is, who we don't see much of, but no. is actually terribly important, I think, in the book, because yeah. he very emphatically defines a sense of belonging in a particular place, in England, indeed. Yeah. And we see that refracted through almost everybody in the book, too, this, the, re- the returning Sicilians especially. Yeah. Um... Yes, that's right. I mean, in terms of who, that, uh, Will and Ed are contrasting in that way, and I think it's Ed has this sort of in-placeness. He's very comfortable in the. I mean, he was very. He's, he's younger than Will, and he's he's jealous of the op, envious of the opportunity to go off and uh, join in the in with the war. But he's very sort of at home in the landscape yeah. and uh, at home in his physicality, which Will isn't. Will is someone. Yeah. Uh, he talked, and Will thinks about this when he's at with with Ed. He thinks about how uh, he's not. I mean, he's good enough at sports, but he's always there's a slight self consciousness which he's sort of ashamed of that he can always feel his mind sort of instigating his body, exactly. and he's not completely in action and completely in uh, the moment in that way. Um, but that part, so Will is someone who is like Lawrence of Arabia, he is inventing himself, he's yeah. narrating himself. And I think that was one of the ideas, one of the things that we sort of I kept coming back to in the novel was history as narration and individual identity as narration and where that breaks down and uh, how that is, how that's done, how that's f- formed. Um, and p- part of the reason Will is so anxious to write this version is, of himself is to do with his relationship with his father, who of is... Course. It was interesting to me to remember how many of the people who fought in the Second World War had were the children of people who fought in the First World War, and his father has uh, not only fought in the First World War but was awarded a VC for uh, an outstanding action which he um, doesn't talk about, doesn't no. like to talk about, because like many people's uh, most courageous moments, it was also... I mean, this is sort of under the surface of the novel, but it was also his most sort of... It was was done in a berserk state. It was mindless, and it was uh, completely um, self-conscious, unthinking. Um, And it just happened to have... uh, And was full of violence, but it happened to have this extraordinary result. So the thing that he is awarded this medal for is actually possibly the moment in his life of which he's most ashamed, which I think is a reasonably common experience among right. decorated soldiers. Um, uh, 
But this is some as his his um, among the many people who wouldn't talk about their experiences, and therefore Will doesn't have doesn't understand any of this and doesn't have access to. There's just this impregnable heroic thing that his father, who is a man of, it was a laconic character anyway, has always withheld from him. So there's Will's action is to there's this struggle to be to live up to his father and to replace him. There's a moment where in Sicily where there's an air raid going on and he actually kind of runs madly out onto this terrace of the place that they're staying to enjoy this kind of insane festivity right. and the danger of it and he says and the the line in the book is is about how he felt like he was in his father's company it felt like they were brothers that finally yeah, exactly they they've become equal at yes. this point no i i think that's a very very sympathetic strand in the whole thing do you want to read something from the later part of the the book sure i'll read um yeah i will uh i'll read something that doesn't give away too much well any plot really so this is um this is a kind of isolated episode will has gone to report something or other to the americans in palermo and he's decided uh, they've taken him out to a spot where soldiers and local women are in uh, a a uh, fairly ancient form of uh, monetary exchange um, and he uh, the chapter starts with him deciding and he's, he's, not, he's gone home, he's been disgusted but the next day for some reason and it's not really explained why at the beginning he's decided uh, to hang on in Palermo um, he walked among buildings and ruins and intermittent churches in places, sunshine reflected from liquid filth moving sluggishly in the drains. After his pickpocketing, Will was where he, Will's had his pocket picked earlier, of the quick skinny children and the watching adults. There was too much movement, too many people here. Much as he tried to convince himself otherwise, Will had never liked London for the same reason. He turned a corner and saw a man aiming a gun up at a window. Will started to intervene. I say, the man fired and a pigeon tumbled down. It bounced, then lay there, swatting its wings against the paving stones as it died. A man brushed past Will's back on a bicycle. Will took refuge in a cafe. On the small circular table in front of him, he placed his Lucretius. He's taken two books with him to read. One is uh, Lucretius on the nature of the universe. Uh, the other is The Wind in the Willows. This, uh, anyway, to refresh his Italian. So he thinks that uh, Italian's pretty easy to pick up if you know your Latin. So it's one of the reasons he reads Lucretius. He opened the book to read of the strength in the frenzy of Venus, which was not what he wanted to think about presently. Instead, he sat like a spy and observed. At a certain hour, the place filled with Sicilians, Sicilian men, no women entered. Perhaps to be a woman in such a place was to put your reputation in as much jeopardy as a lone woman in a pub back home. The men were short and intimate. They touched and held each other. They clambered over each other like bees, collecting coffees from the bar, their voices overlapping. There was a repertoire of gestures that were... Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Foreign flicks, pinchings of the air, touches to the face. Their facial expressions were proud, indifferent, righteous, resigned, intent, philosophical. At the table next to him, several men were mingling their cigarette smoke over a game of cards. They slapped cards down and grabbed them and flipped them across to each other without speaking very much. Uh, I'll skip on. Uh, Will needed to find a tin of food. He walked out into the afternoon and wandered. They needed to do something about rubbish collection. Heaps of filth could be seen everywhere. With a sickening start, he saw that one was alive, a whiteness of moving maggots, so repulsive, that naked writhing, the pulsing and probing of their feeding bodies. Will's digestive tract jerked. He spat into the gutter. For cleaner air, he walked down to the sea. There were barriers everywhere to keep people from the ships, but his pass was effective, and he walked through beyond the boats and the men. Violet water, sombre and low. The darkness of evening was gathering on it. Soothingly inhuman and ancient, the sea, the sea, a deep vista to a horizon, clear air above it. Lucretius argued that the universe had no limit or centre, a thought, a random thought from his reading with which Will did nothing. His mind uttered it as he looked at the sea. He turned around and into the business of the night. He needed to find a tin of food. That beautiful girl was like something from a painting, It was the kind of beauty that enslaved poets, the lustrous hair, the vulnerable mouth and deep, sad eyes, and anyone with a can of food could possess her. Will had a tin now, tightly clasped in his right hand, a ridiculous emblem of the need that was driving him. He wanted to possess her. He wanted to be there first, to be the first to have her. As he found his way back to the place, into the narrow back streets, young boys called out to him, offering to lead him to other women, but he ignored them as if disgusted, shaking his head. Wrong turnings were frustrated. He felt he was being baffled and prevented. He was losing time, the story of his life. Always confusion and delay when he wanted to be swift in action. Several soldiers also carrying tins of food indicated that he was on the right road at last. He hurried ahead of them and found himself at the rubbled space. Already there were soldiers and women gathered, but Will couldn't see her. Perhaps she would come later. Meantime, he had to stand and seem not to watch as the women received their payments and accepted what followed. Hotly ashamed at first, Will found that as he waited, the clamouring self-disgust in him slowly quietened. Everyone was there willingly. No one was getting hurt. It was usual for soldiers in a war or for gentlemen at various times and places to avail themselves of the comfort of women. This was the getting of experience. This was being a man. But still she did not appear. Perhaps she'd got all she needed the night before and would not return. Will gave her ten more minutes. No, she would not appear. Or perhaps a little later she would. While he waited, he might as well join the queue for the next best girl there. He shifted towards her as each of the men ahead of him had their turn and departed. Still, she didn't arrive. In exchange for a tin of mackerel, he lost his virginity to someone else. Afterwards, she patted him on the back of his head. Will caught her hand by the wrist and pulled it away. He rushed back to his billet to wash himself thoroughly in case of disease. Yeah, no, very good. I mean, there is something 
running through a lot of your books about bad sex. <laughs> um, I'm, I must say, I'm, because because what uh, because I think one of the things that you're most interested in is the respect that people should show each other and often don't, and also because I think you're very interested in how innocent states of innocence collide with states of corruption or greed or uh, states that are sort of degraded in one way or another. Um, and because we're about to run out of time, I, I wanted to just quickly touch on one on one last thing in the book, which I have a suspicion, and I wish I hadn't talked about this to you before we came into the room because I would like to surprise you with it. But as I was reading the book, I thought, as, as I'm reading all books, as any of us read all books, we think, well, this is plotted in peace by the author, and the, here, here are some things that snuck in, which they weren't sort of entirely aware of, which, if a, the writer is good, are inevitably very enriching of things. And I think there's a very fascinating pattern of reference through the book to animals. The book opens stunningly well with a description of somebody shooting a partridge and then eating it. It really is one of the best openings to a book that I can think of, actually. But it alerts us to the idea of what live creatures play in the rest of the book. And sometimes we see creatures being killed in a barbaric way. You might not call the shooting of the partridge barbaric, but there it is. It's, it's an, in a sense, an assassinated creature. Quite soon afterwards, a donkey, or is it a mule, I can't remember, is shot. Yeah, mule, yeah. It's a mule, is shot. Um, another sort of assassination, if you like. But at various points we meet, for instance, or rather we don't meet, we see a gull, a raptor, um, who are emblematic of, an, of an, a wonderful sort of freedom and aboveness to all the human activity that's going on. So I think throughout, and then later on, horses and all kinds of other creature life is allowed to exist. And then there is The Wind in the Willows presiding over all this, which is, after all, a, a book almost entirely populated by, well, entirely populated by animals. Um, so, I mean, they're pretty humanised animals, mm. but still they are, you know, they're called ratty and mole and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Um, so I think there is there is a very interesting interplay in the book between ideas of vulnerability and exploitation, which are enacted in the kind of species conflict that runs a sort of as a discrete parallel to what's going on at, at the human, the merely human level. Yeah, I, I think that's um, I think that's right. I mean, I, you. You having said that earlier made me notice that beetle in particular in that right uh, yeah. in that passage and they're they're there. I mean it's they're they're there inhabiting and alluding to the larger world that mm. human the, the these dramas that are full of human error yeah. um, prevent us from Quite. joining. Um, but I don't. Yeah, I think. I mean, and there's there are dogs in Will's uh, world, which are who are important, and he thinks yeah. of them later yeah, on. Very much so. But they, they have a very particular thing of being of that sort of the hydraulics of the emotional life of British families of that time. Being, of you know, it's the the and dogs get that the time, I think. yes, <laughs> the dogs get the overt expression yeah, of affection. Quite. That's where the yeah, that's children where friendliness it, and kind of in the moment quite. behavior gets yeah, rooted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but, speaking but, about my childhood. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Yeah, no, I, know, I know you're you're not alone in the, in that. Um, but yes, I think um, I I like, and I guess it, again, it's that to do with that rupture is that is wanting to see the the these points of drama contained within a larger yeah. um, space that is indifferent to it and is self-sustaining or you know and is, puzz- and is puzzling to understand yeah I mean it's trying to understand it's trying to communicate across divides of one kind or another species divides um, language divides cultural divides yeah experiential divides yeah I mean obviously in, I mean, the quickening maze is this novel I wrote uh, had um, the poet John Clare as one of the main characters I mean obviously he is completely embodies that yeah John Clare is the opposite of war. Absolutely, um, he is. Uh, he is, and um, and so that. But and he feels in, war. He feels yes. Well, he's in he's in the nineteenth yes, century, and he's right. feeling uh, a, a relationship with the natural world um, and amongst people that is. Uh, embittering the world are at war with him. Yes, so. yeah, but it, which which are embittering and uh, material uh, kind of diminishing and. Um, he represents another way of relating to the natural world. So these, uh, uh, and another way of being present and alive in in the moment, which, uh, you know, in various ways, ideology, the ideologies that make wars or uh, the kind of in, in the prerogatives of industry that see the natural world as raw materials right. uh, prevent from fully coming to exist. Yeah. So I think the, yeah, I... I um, that is an important idea for me, and I can I, yeah. I, I can see that the animals do are connecting up with that yes. sense of what the natural world is yes. outside of these people's experience. Yeah, good, good. I have a lot more to say, but now it's your turn. So, why don't you ask Adam some questions, and we'll move into the. Ne- I think there's somebody with a microphone. Here's the person with the microphone. Don't be shy. <laughs> Thanks very much. I haven't read your book, so forgive me for if uh, this question is inopportune. But there, clearly, there are a lot of books like A Boy in a Striped Pajamas and various other historical fiction books that talk about the emotional history of war without the experience where it's fictionalized. And there appears to be it's a popular genre today. And in many instances, it's beginning to dis- displace the real stories of people who've actually gone through the experience. So I just wondered what your thoughts, because you clearly involved yourself in the subject without the primary experience of the subject. Uh, how um, you react to that? Yeah, well, I would... Um, firstly, I would, I'm not sure that displace is, is plausible. Um, moreover, I would... I mean, I, I felt a very strong... Um, uh, sense of uh, diligence towards the real, to the towards the lived experience that uh, informs this novel, and actually out of which this novel is built. So a lot of my research was read, was to do with first person uh, accounts, oral histories, letters, um, and a lot of the say the writing, particularly of the battle scenes, is a process of absorbing elements of those accounts and shaping them uh, together. Um, so there's a, there's a, I 
I was as careful as I could be to um, to respect that material and not to distort it um, in any way, um, but to yeah inevitably to shape it in uh, for characters' uh, experience. And in a way, I was thinking because you've written um, you've put together some fantastic poems out of wartime letters, which are so they're fully. They're, they're not your words, but they are no, your they're collaboration. They're collages or collaborations. I, I, I was tempted to talk, ask you about this, I must yeah. say, but I didn't want to end up talking about me. But I, I am very interested in this. Yeah. Can I just say something very quickly about it? I think that for me, and I felt this in Adam's book too, however well-intentioned we might be in wanting to show sympathy about those who have fought if we have not fought ourselves, that there are particular kind of bear traps and, and they are to do with how we might be caught seeming to aggrandise ourselves by associating with this subject, um, how we might seem to be parading our sympathies in some rather vulgar way. And perhaps one of the ways of uh, dealing with that problem is to find ways of incorporating other people's experience which is true and real and happened, so that we, uh, so that we avoid this avoid this problem. And I th- I thought Adam's book did this very interestingly by not advertising its sourcedness, but it obviously being sourced in all kinds of real real experience. So we don't feel embarrassed by his seeming to big himself up by associating with it. Ask us another. <laughs> I'm, I'm not completely clear what my question is, but it's something to do with the mafia, because we haven't really talked about that yet, no. have we? And um, how, how your book is all about the war, yeah. but it's actually uh, just an interlude yeah. in right. this ongoing war, yeah. Yeah. No, which right. sweeps really back in, yeah. and there's no end in sight for that. No. There's no, you know, we're going to have V Day at some point. We just yeah. don't know when it's going to be. It's yeah. ongoing. Yeah. yeah. And I found that probably a more brutal sort of experience or, yeah. or realization or sensation in a way yeah. than reading about some of the battle scenes, yeah, which I knew were going to be over. Yeah. And it was gone. Yeah. No, that's certainly right that we've emphasized in our conversation those battle scenes. But the main body of what happens in Sicily is in the peace after the conflict is. And it's a, about an attempt to buy the Allies. Is the period of AMGOT, Allied Military Government of the Occupied Territories, as it was uh, known, um, to reconstruct the the country, to start to undertake this process of what they call defascistification, um, and to you know create a new rule of law, to issue a currency, to do um, uh, various things that you need to do to get a civil society happening again, hire a police force and, and so on. And there, yeah, it's it's certainly right that some of the some of the motivation for writing this novel came from wanting to look at that phenomenon and uh, uh, and think about that as a corollary of attempts at reconstruction after conflict that we are. Uh, quite familiar with today happening in Afghanistan and Iraq and seeing uh, it's a similar thing of 
um, limited intelligence allowing certain things to take root before you're aware that they have done and in this case that's that's all tied up with the mafia so fascism had been really the only thing in Sicilian uh, society that had um, had successfully curtailed the mafia since it sort of uh, became a thing Um, and then when the allies come they come partly with the help of uh, Sicilian Americans, Sicilian exiles in America who uh, include mafiosi, and then when defascistification happens, people come out of prisons um, uh, and they emerge as political prisoners, but a lot of them also were jailed mafiosi. So there's, there are moments uh, where um, the Americans install as a mayor of a town a, a significant mafioso, and it's the it's the point at which um, the mafia gets hold of the, the island again um, as you say in a, with a grip that has yet to be fully broken Yes, I'm sorry we didn't speak, I mean there was so much that we didn't, but, but you're, I'm very glad that you say that, but for all the reasons that Adam has, has now pointed to, but also because I think it, it, it directs us to something very interesting about the structure of the novel, which is I mean I don't know about you, but the first time I read it I thought Okay, so there is this, these are fantastic battle scenes that we've had on the way to the invasion of Sicily. And when we get there, it's going to get even more like that. But actually, of course, that isn't what happens. So the, the second half, slightly more than half of the book, is not really about fighting. It's, well, not in those terms, anyway. It's other sorts of conflict between returning people and people who've made their lives in some way or other during the, um, the time that these other guys have been shipped out um, and between the arriving troops and the indigenous people and so on and so forth so it has a kind of quietness comparatively the, the, the last two thirds of whatever it is of the book that is, allows it to be med- to meditate about the themes which have been stirred up in the first part it seems to me and recast them in slightly different terms as I think you mean to say yourself it raises a big question about roles I think. right Right. How clear some of these roles Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. Yes. Which in turn is connected with the question of belonging that we did raise earlier. So, you know, Will is somebody who feels, and his brother Ed, uh, feel they belong there, but they're trying to create a sense of belonging somewhere else. The returning people, where do they belong? They come with their experience of America, but can they kind of rekindle the, the Sicilian belongingness? Yes, but often very brutally. Um, in which case, what sort of belonging is it? Et cetera, et cetera. So th- these two parts, which and the two parts of the novel, which in terms of the drama of their narrative seem rather unalike, are actually very closely fused, I, I think. <laughs> Not quite the end, but... Uh, you had a question? Given your focus on the soldiers and the terrible toll that war takes on them both physically and spiritually, as we speak, my country, uh, assisted by yours, is at war in more than one place. And uh, I know back in the States, the public is virtually oblivious Mm. to the the toll it's taking on its soldiers. Uh, Any thoughts on that in regard to what you're writing about? 
Um, I mean, I, th- I think yeah, it's a it's a very well made point that um, uh, uh, that this is this uh, these experiences are being undergone by young men and women in large numbers uh, today, and it's more out of sight uh, now than uh, it ever um, has been, really, um, given. Um, how disturbingly canny uh, our governments have become about um, keeping it largely concealed or only exposing uh, discussable bits of that um, to uh, public scrutiny. So, yes, I um, agree. There's also, I mean, there is, uh, there was, there was a very interesting sort of conference the other uh, a little while ago about the first world war i had a there's a, a military doctor was showing us the um uh the developments in uh military medicine so there's now there's been a, i think it was a 30 percent but um uh, increase in the number of people who survive, survive very severe injury um uh because of the the there's actually just the kind of logistical developments that have happened in military medicine. Um, and that is obviously means that we are now... Uh, that, yeah, that there are people in uh, living lives that weren't possible to be um, lived before and that need a good deal of attention and support. So, um, uh, yeah, it's a, very, it's a very live question and uh, it's, a very, uh, uh, it's a very important thing to, uh, to raise. It is very weird, isn't it, that we have the means of knowing more about this than ever before, but we're not using them. I mean, I thought that was implicit in the way that you put the question. Um, Our troops and yours that come home from Afghanistan this month and next, I think I'm right in saying that it's something like the first time for 100 years that the Brits haven't been at war somewhere. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. Well, thank God. (laughs) <laughs> yeah in a way so I just kind of follow um, I guess part of I mean obviously this is it's very historically specific but part of my sense of what the book's about is the way is that how, is. how war has been endemic it is um, and what that and how that that violence is recurrent and where that comes from and what that experience is um, how that's lived out through individual lives. Um, so yeah, so it ta- it uh, to some extent it could have been set at in, in any other you know of those yeah. hundred years in any other of those yeah. particular sets of contingent circumstances. No, I think ab- absolutely. I mean, either in terms of sort of full blown war conflicts coming round and round and round as though we've never learned anything. Or in, or in terms of full-blown conflict mutating into other kinds of conflict, like the mutation of um, the conflict that we think the Second World War to have been into mafia business. So what... It's poor old Silvio, isn't it? Have I got his name right? Who gets blown up? Yeah. Um, by the, the jealous person returning... Yeah, that, and that was sort of the that was one of the reasons I wanted to write that stuff was to yeah. see that uh, to see you know massive intergovernmental violence and yeah. individual personal 
violence and to get into actually in at certain points to get into Will's psyche and see that there's a there's a violence that's kicking there's a moment where he talks about how he's having a this conversation with his mother at dinner and she says something that annoys him and he has this urge to throw his water in her That's face right. he says that it's something and this is just a tick it's a mental tick but it's something that happens quite often is that he gets this urge to throw drinks in people's faces and he never does it but it's so kind of the thought of it is so sort of lustrous and satisfying that he mm. can't not think it but that so that but that's you know that's that's right on one end that's kind of the microcosmic right. level in in someone's psyche of out Absolutely. of which all this stuff is coming arises exactly exactly so i'm conscious that all our conversation has been had against a background of people having a very jolly time and you're <laughs> and you're no doubt longing to have one of your own so, but let's listen to this uh, there's a running theme in your uh, work about relationship with the past so you have with john claire a very specific person who has obviously uh, existed in real uh, and here it's very much past focused how does that work when you're planning does the period of history come first or the theme i mean what draws you to a particular uh, direction um, well, in, it, it varies. I mean, they obviously, they speak to the present moment. They speak to me in the present moment in particular ways. Um, uh, and with, and in different ways. So, um, the broken word it was really about actually that conflict in particular and what I didn't know about it that I came to learn about it and um, how uh, extreme it was and how recent in our past and how repressed its memory and its narrative has been in Britain until very recently actually and, in, uh, and in, uh, it has been kind of more talked about and exposed recently in large part because of the case for damages have been brought by Kenyan survivors of torture and successfully against the British government um, the quickening maze had to do with actually those environmental things were, were sort of important in the inspiration of it and the sense of that John Clare's crisis um, is to live in the, in the industrial revolution in this historical explosion where the shape of the world, our relationship with it is changing and our sense of whether um, life is sustainable in the, on, on these new terms is in question. Um, and that f- feels, therefore, like it's happening actually just closer to the centre of the historical explosion that we are still living in. We still don't know if um, our technologies are survivable. Um, and the, uh, in the wolf's mouth, um, again, d- different, as I said, partly out of needing to get uh, to write my way through st- that violence and trauma material that was still there from the broken word, and as I say, connected with um, the the idea of reconstruction and conflict. And actually, it was more. It was taking that. Uh, it was extending the time that I spent coming out of trauma and coming into the world again and making uh, and seeing it being made, both kind of uh, problematically, politically, but, but more importantly, I guess, um, personally 
in uh, in reconnecting and finding ways to continue to exist in the light of what you know. And in a way, I guess, what I'm realising uh, as I speak <laughs> is that that's um, part of what the book was for, was to enable me to work out how to do that in the face of this violence that is endemic and that I was... Uh, uh, confronting myself with or had been confronted with um, and working out working out where to put that and how to uh, continue uh, uh, being in the world in a uh, uh, in a positive and connected uh, way that's got a little bit self-help no, at the end but it's, no, tr- no. it's true um, and I think that sorry I don't I won't, I won't uh, but I think that's partly that comes out of um, uh, coming from a Jewish background where I got a lot of Holocaust education in my childhood. It means that that gets that's right at the centre of your imagination. That's given to you as a kind of underlying truth about human experience is what happened in the camps and what people will do to one another. And actually, my I've, I've latterly realised that my writing through the quickening, uh, the broken word and in the wolf's mouth has been to do with actually that stuff right. that um, is, as I say, deep in my actually my childhood sense of the world, that this, un- this is just below the surface of normal human behaviour um, and, and can erupt, um, and therefore working out what that means and how you need to live and see the world in the light of that. That feels like a very good place to end. Um, thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much to Adam. Um, this is a fantastically good book. So if you haven't bought a copy already, come about now. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.